Hi guys, welcome back to House Eat an Elephant. You can follow us on our Instagram at House Eat an Elephant Podcast. We're joined today for the first of a three-part interview with Hannah Begovic from Earth Advocacy Youth. You can find out more about their work uh, at earthadvocacy-youth.org. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello everyone. Hi guys. Hope you're all doing well. This is a very exciting episode. Uh, we're having our first guest, Hannah Begovic. We're going to talk about Earth jurisprudence, rights of nature, and we're going to discuss ecological literacy and also how um, she tackles with mental health in uh, navigating the space. Thank you so much for being here with us, Hannah. No, thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. So where are you currently based, Hannah? I am in a, in a canyon in Quito, in Ecuador, uh, where I'm, I'm here with my, with my two cats and, and my husband and, uh, and the river and the birds around. Um, it's really nice. I am doing well. Um, very excited about this podcast. It's going to be fun. Uh, how long have you been in Quito? Well, I've been traveling back and forth for the past three years but now I've been here for about two months. So Hannah, you were saying before you started about the number of languages that you speak. How do you think this has affected your approach to earth jurisprudence and climate activism more generally? Of course. So what I am looking at mainly through my environmental work is how do we change the narrative as a way to change the system? Um, because as we know, the, the narrative is very much what shapes and enables uh, a set of values, a set of perceptions um, and ideas to exist. Um, and so a few years ago, I made an alarming observation that really completely changed my game plan in my environmental work. Um, I noticed that in many countries and cultures, ecosystems and non-human beings Uh, are seen as human-owned objects uh, whose reason for existence is really to be exploited and used for human benefit and economic profit. And unfortunately, this is the dominant narrative of today and it permeates all, almost all spaces in which economic power is fostered and decision-making takes place. Um, and for me, I, I found this to be very disturbing because such views defy the natural laws that govern life on Earth. And this model only benefits the few. It jeopardizes the rights to life of all of us, really, and respect of the many. And it unmercifully destroys the preconditions for life on Earth. Um, and I discovered that a pillar within this narrative is how nature often is spoken about um, through this insidious lens of a dichotomy that separates the human being from nature and arrogantly enough states that humans are somehow superior to nature. Um, and, I, and I call this a cognitive illusion uh, which tries to portray nature as disconnected from us, like it is something separate, something, um, something exterior. Um, and this is very concerning to say the least because as, if we decide to maintain this dichotomy in our governance systems, 
that are based on anthropocentric violence against non-human life on Earth and limitless economic growth, which is hugely unrealistic. Uh, humanities will just keep contributing to the irreversible collapse of ecosystems across the planet. So that's where kind of the narrative comes in and how um, how looking how our perceptions of the world around us and ourselves has to change um, as a way to uh, to change the system. Um, because in many of these spaces where decisions are taken, policy is drafted, where political power grows, um, then the narrative is still not um, a sustainable one in the sense that it doesn't create the structures and the processes that are actually gonna enable for the balance of this earth system and all these living systems within it to, to actually exist and prosper. That idea of cognitive illusion is really interesting. Do you have any good examples of the types of narrative that you're trying to change uh, through your work with Earth Advocacy Youth? I call it the living systems narrative. And the living systems narrative uh, incorporates three pieces. Uh, first, the definition of living systems. Um, we talk a lot about nature, but many times we don't actually reflect what we mean when we say that word, what kind of value, what kind of meaning do we place in that word? Um, and many times I've heard people say humans and nature or humans versus nature or uh, talking about nature as if it's all that is non-human. Um, and so this is also something that is within this narrative to shift the way we talk about nature. It doesn't mean to not use nature anymore as a word, but reflect upon what we mean with it, and perhaps also expand it with both uh, with precision and with with definition. Um, so, with living systems, uh, what I I use this quote uh, that I think is really good and that really really explains this in a very good way. Um, and it goes like this: uh, Every living organism, from the smallest bacterium to all the varieties of plants and animals, including humans, is a living system. So the parts of uh, living systems are themselves living systems. A leaf is a living system. A muscle is a living system. Every cell in our bodies is a living system. Communities of organisms, including both ecosystems and human social systems, such as families, schools, and other human communities are living systems. So seeing, this, seeing uh, the existence of life in a very holistic way, uh, that's what this narrative talks about. And it's very much based in a philosophy uh, that is called Earth Jurisprudence. So Hannah, can you break down what Earth Jurisprudence is for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar with the term? Earth Jurisprudence is a philosophy and practice of law and human governance that recognizes that the Earth is embedded in a complex system that governs the web of life. And humans are one member of a wider community of living beings. And the well-being and the welfare of each member of this community is dependent on the well-being and welfare of the planet as a whole. We're all interconnected. Um, and Earth uniquely sustains life as we know it through a complex system of living processes and laws as a self-regulating planetary organism. Um, and so Earth jurisprudence as a philosophy and practice makes it possible for ecologically aware legal and governance systems to emerge. 
Um, and obviously to achieve this, the fundamental changes uh, in discourses of power are crucial, uh, along with a diversity of insights and worldviews and perceptions, cultures. And so shifting uh, perceptions about our role on this planet and deepening our relationships to the rest of the earth is really important in this transformation. And one tool that is used to change, to create this change, this transformation, is called Rights of Nature. And Rights of Nature is a branch within Earth jurisprudence. And it is a legal tool which implements the intrinsic legal rights of ecosystems to exist, to thrive, to evolve, to regenerate, and to continue their vital cycles. It enables the Earth community to claim the protection of those rights in human courts of law. And the Rights of Nature advances a new worldview where you respect the aliveness, the interconnectedness, and the uniqueness of all life on Earth. And in the, especially in the past 10 years, the Rights of Nature has gained uh, a lot of attention and traction in legal systems all over the world. So that's kind of the narrative that I work to promote. Does the emerging concept of ecocide stem from this idea of rights of nature? They're connected, definitely. Ecocide is, it focuses more on the systemic and mass destruction of, uh, of ecosystems. Um, and they work to build uh, an international, to, a law that makes ecocide an international crime against peace. Um, so they, it's, it's all, it's very connected to, to this philosophy. So I remember, uh, during our summer school, you, you talked to me about, uh, different terms that kind of set alarm bells, such as human centered solutions or the idea of safeguarding and protecting and protecting nature or even as you said, the lack of thought that goes behind using the term nature. Uh, can you talk, can you explain why these terms can be problematic and give a better idea of what we, of what you're talking about? Of course. Um, so as storytellers, we must learn the power of our stories, what meaning we place in our words and how our stories configure our understandings of reality and our actions. Um, so why is this important to reflect upon the words we use and what meaning we place in them? Because words have immense power and the way we use words produces and reproduces certain patterns, values and perceptions. So how do our stories shape the views of who we are as humans and of our relationships with the world around us? How do we create powerful stories of a new paradigm and have those stories navigate us through ecological crises? Um, at the end of the day, it is our stories that will recreate us, that will change today's dominant narrative, and that will hopefully change the system. So it starts very much from what are the different words and terms and ideas that should be encouraged and others that should be rethought. I can hear Emilio in the background. <laughs> He's meowing, he's meowing somewhere. So as you said, a huge part of creating change is having and improving our e ecological literacy. Is there, are there steps or things that we could do even in, in the schooling systems or 
uh, in terms of education that could help us uh, create this framework that moves us forward in a way that, as you say, as you say, it's more just uh, for the ecosystem in general? I mean, it starts, I would say, it starts with awareness. Um, and you get awareness by reflecting. Uh, yeah. uh, it's, I think it's very much about uh, becoming aware of what, what your story is about, what is your message. Um, and I love working with kids uh, because they have such an imagination and they're still very open and curious uh, to learn new ideas and, to, and they can see a lot of sense in many, many ideas. And so um, I think what's very important when it comes to education system is to create a, a space where, um, where children can build a relationship with their surroundings, with other elements of nature, um, to, to not sit in a sterile classroom for example, but to go out to uh, have exercises together. Um, and there are many ways of doing this. Uh, I mean, the project that Em and I have, have been working on, I mean, that is a, I would say that is a very, very good example of how to, uh, how to really start changing the narrative uh, through the tiny, the tiny humans. <laughs> yeah. Starting to reflect and, and also open up a space where it is okay to have different opinions and to be autocritical. More than anything, it's looking at what is it that we want? What is our message? Because if our message is that all, our, all of Earth's living systems have a, the equal right to exist and thrive on this planet, then we should shape our language accordingly because we can give the very, we can give the wrong message uh, through the words that we use or the, word, the, the meaning that we choose to place in them if, they are, if, it is not, if it is not connected and synchronized with the message that we actually want to give mm -hmm. or what we're working towards. Absolutely. Talking about uh, the project that we did this summer, so for people that haven't heard of it, we thought of a program that would um, uh, help us the kids, kids to access nature and to spend more time in nature because one of the main problems we we highlighted and we saw is that there's a growing disconnection with nature so whereas people in the past would play outside and would spend lots of time outside and develop this relationship and respect for the environment and, and nature we were seeing that something that is uh, lacking more and more uh, in the youth nowadays and so how do you see how concerning do you think it is that we are moving towards um, urbanized urban living and this disconnection is growing and what can we what do you think we can do for the kids and young people uh, of the world to kind of think about these these systems and and feel like they're a part of nature and not outside of it. Um, so, I mean, the disconnection is definitely concerning um, and it's growing in many of the many urban areas. And I think um, there, are different, uh, there are different impacts that are consequences of that disconnection. And one is first that how are you, how will you have the motivation and the willingness to protect something that you don't know? Exactly. That you don't relate to or that you don't have a relationship with. Um, 
and all all living beings we're not equally connected to all living systems on this planet maybe some some people connect more to a river some more to a forest but that that's because they have they have uh built a relationship um with that living system uh with that element of nature and so that is why there is also more empathy and more willingness and more motivation to protect that forest for example or that river um so that is one point that how are you you you're not you can't expect someone to want to protect something and see an intrinsic value in it if they have not uh connected emotionally and and uh, i guess in a way physically to that space then also the second aspect is that we're seeing mental health really being uh, negatively affected by this disconnection because there there are so many studies out there that talk about the importance of of uh connecting with with all of nature around and things like forest bathing for example that is a practice that is very old and um and there is a lot of research saying that if you go out in a forest and you walk for 20 minutes it is it is like therapy it's it's really it cleanses you in a in a very profound way um and so that is the second element and then i think you know there are different roles for how this can be changed first it is the role of the municipality um or the local government uh because the way they build the city the way they design the city also shapes in the ways the citizens interact with it um and how they would interact with other living systems. So um not creating cities that are concrete towns but that are that have plenty of green areas that have a close uh close relation to maybe some semi urban or r- uh, rural areas around so that it's easy to get out of the city as well. Um and and then the second thing is also something that fascinates me as well is looking at how do we make uh people not just children but people in general understand how alive everything is around us and interconnected and interconnected like when you see when you go into the forest or when you walk in a park and you see different trees understanding that okay this tree is right now talking to that tree mm-hmm. they're connected and if that tree uh would get sick those other trees are going to send nutrition to that tree And so there is this whole web. Um if there are, I I even read the other the other day that there are even like flowers um that start to produce more nectar when they sense that a bee is near. Which is just, you know, and and making making that making people aware of those things as they walk by. They don't see something that doesn't move and think that it's not alive or that it's not that it doesn't communicate with with you as well. Um because Na- all of nature all these different uh systems within nature they have plenty of voices they have it's not nature doesn't have just one voice it has countless voices and i think what we have what has happened is that we have through this disconnection we have kind of forgotten how to hear those voices uh in our own ways um and and to recognize the aliveness that is around us. So I think that is also like uh, that is also part of this process that I think is very important.
So you you mentioned that there was one point in which you realized how unjust and unsustainable the system is and these framework frameworks that you have highlighted are. And you mentioned, we talked about the fact that you worked with indigenous communities. Are there instances or is there a specific reason why you had this this awakening? Is there something that jumps to mind that kind of was a turning point for you in in deciding to be in this space? Yeah, so I would say so. I mean, uh, it kind of started growing on me, like uh, mm -hmm. at university. Well, also before that, when I, I was like, when I was 14 and started collecting articles on climate change and human rights and democracy and all of those things, that's kind of when everything sparked for me. It just started, I just started becoming so aware of the world and yeah. how complex it is and how things have to change. Um, but then specifically this more earth-centered perspective started growing on me um, at university when I took a course in human ecology. Mm -hmm. When I started just seeing the connections more um, of how we are so deeply and intrinsically interconnected to everything and everyone. And so for me, I guess it was when I was doing my thesis. I went to Ecuador and I started researching around the sociocultural constructs that exist and that shape the relationships that, um, that many people, uh, women and, and, and men, um, have uh, with the rest of nature in, in these indigenous communities. Um, and so, so I started looking at that and I started realizing that Um, through this research and talking to more and more indigenous, uh, especially indigenous women, uh, is that there is such a deep connection um, between us uh, all, all between all life on, on this planet that is so easily forgotten and that this system is rejecting. Um, and just this one thing that really fascinated me was I was talking to this uh, Quechua woman and She was telling me how she, in her chakra, her garden, um, mm -hmm. she goes there and she sings to the spirit in the chakra that give, brings the energy and the life into the chakra that makes sure that her plants are healthy. And then she does this one thing that is like a little ritual where she takes the yuca, which is a root plant that they consume a lot in the Amazon. And she picks them, she harvests them, and then she does a mix of achote. Achote is mm -hmm. a, like a red root that has a very strong color. And they, she takes uh, the achote and water, mixes it, and then she bathes the yuca that she harvested in that. And what was really beautiful is that she told me that that was a way, that was like a symbolic blood transfusion in a way. That, that she bonded with the harvested plant that she had taken care of from the beginning with the spirit in her chakra. And that a connection was made to what she has, what she harvested. Um, and so though all those different uh, stories really made me understand that, you know, the way things are at the moment in the dominant narrative is not correct and it's not, It's not going to work Absolutely. Uh, for the long term. And we as young people, we need to work really hard now to ensure that we can secure a future where we can exist and live and thrive and, and 
and live in balance with the rest of the web of life.